Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Lots going on in the intelligence and security world again, of course, starting with Ukraine. There's also news on the otherworldly front of cyberspace, Gene. That's right, Jeff. I love technology stories. And this one really intrigued me. The idea that the metaverse that we're hearing so much about could give extremists of all stripes sophisticated new tools to recruit and train members, as well as provide an entirely new attack surface. So I don't want to disregard uh, conventional threats. That That is in the short term. I think the metaverse affords people being much better at doing all sorts of things that we care about from a danger perspective. But there's also the entirely new landscape where people will be designing, making a building within uh, the metaverse itself, and those become targets as well. That was Sam Hunter of the University of Nebraska, Omaha. I'll be talking to him and some of his collaborators about their concerns about how the metaverse could enable bad guys. Meanwhile, there's been lots of questions about what the FBI knew or should have known about the oncoming January 6 riots. Here's New Hampshire Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan quizzing a top FBI national security official, Jill Sanborn, about it. Uh, I want to turn to Ms. Sanborn now. Um, according to a recent report, the FBI has currently charged 257 people associated with the events on January 6. Of the individuals charged to date in relation to the attacks of January 6, how many were already under investigation by the Bureau? Ma'am, I'd have to get you the specific number, um, but I can only recall from my memory one of the individuals that was under investigation prior. The answer Ms. Sanborn, the FBI official, gave to Senator Hassan was, to put it mildly, deeply concerning. Now, a few weeks ago, an investigative reporter by the name of Jason Palladino wrote a piece on the independent news site Grid that examined five contradictory explanations the FBI has given for its actions on, around, and after the January 6 events. I found it eye-opening, even startling, so I called him up to talk about it. Jason Palladino, welcome to Spy Talk. You write that the FBI has given at least five different explanations for why it failed to heed warnings and take steps to foil the Capitol attack or help other agencies prepare a response. Obviously, you don't believe them. You have a, you have a rather astonishing quote from former FBI agent Mike German, who made his bones infiltrating white supremacist groups, as saying the Bureau uses its failures to plead for more money and uh, manpower. Now, I want to get down to those five FBI excuses you named. But first, what's been the response to your story? Uh, the response has been has been great. Uh, I've, I've had a lot of people reaching out. Um, I've, I've had people from Capitol Hill reach out and uh, sort of uh, offer that that what the questions we raise in this piece would be smart questions for the committee to ask of the FBI. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so it's been, you know, it's been a great response. Okay, good. In other words, they believe these are really important, serious questions to ask of the FBI. And do you know if they have any plans to call the FBI on the carpet and ask these questions? So unfortunately, if, if you watch the latest uh, Judiciary Committee hearings, the a lot of these questions just don't get asked. Um, I think the one place on Capitol Hill where where we can we're going to see some really important questions um, be asked and hopefully answered is the January sixth committee. They've already submitted one uh, uh, list of questions to the FBI, and I, I believe they're asking the right questions. What's been the FBI response to your story? The FBI response uh, was basically uh, similar to other responses they've given to to sort of. Uh, more critical coverage, uh, which is to say that, you know, one, they don't do crowd control. They're not involved in crowd control, uh, you know, which is not something 
um, you know, I, I claim in my piece that they're responsible for. And two, that they just didn't have evidence of a uh, specific threat that people were going to enter the Capitol that day. Okay, let's let's break it down now. You write that the FBI's explanation that nothing we saw suggested violence was possible on January 6th is false. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, basically, you did not have to be a uh, master of intelligence, someone who had eyes on every single social media channel to know that something was going to happen that day. There were journalists, academics, uh, I mean, everyday people uh, warning the FBI that there were specific credible threats to the building itself and to members of Congress in the days leading up. Uh, you know, there were there was one in particular, one example of uh, that I found interesting, which was a guy who runs a website dedicated to the history of the tunnels that run underneath the Capitol. And he saw a massive spike in traffic. And all of that traffic was coming from some anonymous forums where uh, sort of far right activists uh, gather. And he can see that referral traffic through his website. Um, and he, he went back to those posts and saw that there were people planning, um, uh, you know, looking at blueprints of the tunnels. He was so concerned, he submitted that evidence to the FBI and said, what are we going to do about this? Um, and didn't hear back. And did he and when did he give that evidence to the FBI? Uh, so he submitted that on January 1. Um, his name is uh, Elliot Carter. He's a D.C. historian. So he just writes an innocent blog exploring one of the many histories of Washington, D.C. and the federal government. And he does a blog or website on the history of the tunnels underneath the Capitol. And he just noticed this spike in traffic from what he thought were extremist groups. And he gave that information to the FBI on January 1. That's fully five days in advance of the riots or assault. And he got no response back. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, and the very next day, um, Parler, the, the sort of right wing alternative social media uh, website, um, they forwarded posts that they found concerning to the FBI as well. Um, specific, credible threats uh, that they were concerned enough about that they forwarded to the FBI. Okay. Um, they did this earlier than that as well. And they, mm. they ultimately sent uh, over 50 posts that they were concerned about to the FBI. And again, they got no response either. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the response that, that they received, but I, I know that um, there are lawmakers who were critical of the FBI not taking those posts specifically seriously. Okay. You also write that you don't have much faith in the FBI's explanation that they didn't have sufficient visibility into the violent groups that would be involved on January 6th. Yeah, this this one I just find really hard to believe. I mean, if you just look at the 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 three main groups that were involved in this violence, so we've got the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the Three Percenters. Um, all three of these groups were known to the FBI at various levels. Uh, the there is reporting that shows that the Proud Boys were in touch with the FBI, um, and even that the FBI was in some cases using the Proud Boys to gather intelligence on Antifa and, you know, a loosely organized anti-fascist group that the Proud Boys often spar with in protests uh, around the country. And so there were agents who were, had, you know, using the Proud Boys as sources um, so that they could uh, keep on taps of, of, you know, where Antifa was going to gather. Um, in terms of the the Oath Keepers, the Oath Keepers have been known to the FBI for a very long time, um, you know, dating back to the, the Bundy Ranch incidents and uh, various, uh, you know, armed uh, movements. The three percenters have a role in the, um, you know, attempted kidnapping of Gretchen Whitmer, which we're, you know, we're now learning uh, the FBI was... Um, uh, very aware of at, at a number of different levels. So I just think it's, it, it just doesn't hold up. I mean, you know, these, these are groups that the FBI had files on 
uh, were in some cases had sources within. Um, how how is it that they didn't have this intel from within these groups? Mm, that's a very good question. Uh, we know in particular about the FBI's use of the Proud Boys as informants. And the implication here is that either the FBI wasn't interested or the Proud Boys were not revealing their plans for January 6th. Either way, the FBI kind of stumbled on that group. Yeah, and I think, I think one thing to note here that's important is that, you know, as these new indictments start to come out that show more and more that this wasn't just a stochastic incident, that there was, you know, deliberate planning behind these events, uh, it, it, it's, it really begs the question to the FBI even further, well, if this was such a, a you know, preconceived planned event, how was it that you missed this? You had mm. people who were on terrorism watch lists uh, all flying to D.C., uh, the day before, what did that not light up a computer screen somewhere in the FBI? Um, so there's a lot of questions remaining. Yeah, evidently it did not light up their radar or they just ignored it. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, question number three, you say, the FBI says it's, the FBI says the constitution tied our hands. Yeah, and you know, this is, this sort of matches a pattern that uh, uh, former FBI agent uh, Mike German um, notes where, you know, after some big event happens and people are going to the FBI and starting to ask, how did you miss this? They, they claim one, that they need more authorities and two, that they need more money. Well, after 9-11, they got both of those things. Uh, they got many more authorities um, and, and their budget swelled to, you know, now it's over $10 billion. Um, some of the answers that, that Director Ray has given at, at various hearings just don't seem to hold up. Um, he, he claims that basically uh, they didn't have the proper predication to uh, begin collecting information that would have um, you know, informed a better response. Um, but it's just not true. I mean, if you, you can read the, the FBI's own domestic investigation guidelines, and uh, they are clearly allowed to, to at least gather uh, some information, especially when publicly posted, as much of this was. The other thing here uh, is that, you know, a lot of these groups that were the most violent that day that we now know did serious planning ahead of this event, a lot of these groups had violent histories. I mean, even just a few weeks before the, uh, the Capitol breach, uh, were, you know, being arrested for violent incidents, there was plenty of criminal predication to look into some of these folks. Mm-hmm. You also take issue with the FBI's explanation that it's hard to distinguish intentional posts on social media, which presage actual violence, from the aspirational or mere bluster. Now, I'm not saying that this isn't difficult. I think this is very difficult. I think it's hard to know if, uh, you know, uh, crazy Uncle Greg's posts on Facebook uh, are serious, or if he's just, you know, letting off some steam. Um, the issue I think here is that uh, I don't believe that the FBI is applying a sort of equal measurement um, onto this question when it comes to groups from different political with different political aims. Um, and to sort of illustrate this point, I found examples of social media posts by social justice or left-wing activists. Um, that the FBI instantly determined were intentional, showed up and in some cases even arrested people right on the spot for making these posts. But in the case of many of these people who ended up traveling to DC for January 6th, I mean, there were people saying things, um, you know, very, very intentional, I would argue, posts that we're going to go in, we're going to take this entrance, we're going to drag Nancy Pelosi out um, uh, of the building, you know, um, there, there's a long list of these types of posts that were, again, that Parler itself was so concerned about that they were forwarding to the FBI. So my question for the FBI then would be, well, you know, what, what is the, the, the metric you're using to measure uh, when you think a, a threat is credible versus aspirational? Now, it's, it's, I mean, it's very difficult because, you know, they'll say, we don't want to get in the way of the First Amendment or anyone's right to, you know, um, protest or, uh, you know, freely speak online. 
Uh, but it's just, you know, if this isn't being applied equally, I think it really raises some questions about the, the politics of the FBI as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. And finally, you take issue with the FBI explanation that our tools failed us. Yeah, this one, this one is interesting. I mean, we basically, you don't need sophisticated tools to know what was going to happen on, on January 6th. I mean, if journalists and sort of everyday people, non-law enforcement folks were able to gather this information and, you know, deduce from it that something big was going to happen, uh, I don't think you need that. I mean, I, there's even some cases where these tools harm the investigation rather than help it. And what I mean by that is, if you have a tool that automatically scrapes social media posts, uh, what you're doing then is you're just making a giant haystack and making the needles in that haystack that much harder uh, to find. Um, the Can day you explain the, that a little bit more? Yeah. So uh, there's been a, a, I think there's a lot of companies out there um, and, you know, that the FBI contracts with some of them. Um, that claim that they they are able to sort through the the noise and find the signal in terms of you know violence or dangerous threats online. Um, but I think the problem with that is that oftentimes when you're scraping social media posts, the volume is so high. There's so many posts out there, and the the AI involved in this is just not good enough yet. Um, you know they they all apply sentiment analysis. They apply these these various algorithms to the the uh, posts. Uh, but what you end up with is just a huge collection, a huge basket of posts that then now you need a human to sort through to determine what is credible and what is not, or what is an intentional post versus an aspirational post compared to the sort of old fashioned investigative um, techniques of getting people out there, embedding people in some of these extremist groups and actually, you know, using a human brain rather than a computer one to determine where the biggest threats lie. Mm -hmm. You know, the big disconnect here is that there was no secret at all that something bad was brewing in the weeks leading up to January 6th. I called an intelligence official myself and said, are you guys on top of this? Do you see what's coming here? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're monitoring it very closely. At the same time, we later saw an FBI, a top FBI official saying, well, we can't monitor social media, right? That was just not true. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just not correct. They, you know, especially uh, post 9-11, their, their authority, they have all of the authorities they need to monitor social media. Um, and you're right that, that there, you know, there was, you didn't need to be an expert to uh, see that something was going to happen. Well, it seems to be that the FBI is very quick to uh, zero in on aspirational uh, acts by uh, terrorists, uh, people associated with Al-Qaeda and ISIS and so on, who merely have an interest in joining them, going to Syria and so on. They're fast to intercept these people and take them off the streets, but they weren't fast at all to move uh, on the uh, right-wing extremists who were marching on the Capitol. I, I can't recall a single arrest before the January 6th incidents. Can you? No. And, and you know, there's actually uh, the, the FBI at first uh, you know, just days after January 6th, came out in public and said, uh, we had zero intelligence that that anything was going to happen. A few days later, they came out and, and sort of revised that and said, we traveled around the country to various people's houses and tried to convince them not to go. Uh, sort of contradicting the earlier statement that they didn't have intelligence that something's going to happen. I asked them for more information about this. Reporters have been looking into this. Nothing more is known about who are these people that they went and visited, uh, how many people in which states uh, did those people ultimately travel to DC. We don't know. Um, so that's a big one that you know I'm really curious about, and I'm hoping in the January 6th committee's report and in the uh, uh, Inspector General report that is being worked on right now, we're going to learn more about. Uh, those instances. Mm -hmm. Now, Jason, you've written a very detailed and persuasive story on FBI failures. How did you get interested in this subject and what kind of expertise did you bring to it? Yeah, so uh, 
I've been covering the military, uh, federal law enforcement, surveillance, and um, you know, as as the reason I wanted to do this story was, it, it seemed like in parts of the media, people were sort of losing sight um, of of where the accountability lens should focus here. There was a lot of, I mean, I think it's very deserved the, the effort to you know apprehend people involved in the Capitol riot is a very impressive effort. There's thousands, literally thousands of FBI agents working on it. They've, you know, I think it's over 700 people have now been arrested. Um, but the, the, the questions just weren't being asked, like, how did this happen? I mean, how did the premier like law enforcement anti-terror agency not see this coming? Uh, and, and I, it just was, I was watching these hearings, these oversight hearings and just thinking, this is not, you know, these are not the right questions. You know, we need to know why this happened and the failures that led to this. Um, and so that interested me. Now we we've seen failures of congressional oversight on, on intelligence issues for, for decades. Um, so can you identify anybody on any of these committees who's particularly interested in getting to the bottom of the FBI's responses uh, or issues around January 6th? Yeah, I mean, there, there's certain mem- there are certain members who, who I think uh, are, are asking decent questions. The problem is there's just no follow-up. You know, there's, um, uh, if I was sitting in that room and I was passing questions, you know, I was a staffer for some of these folks um, and, Director Ray gave the answers like he did, I would just immediately scribble down and say, this is, you know, this is the response to that. That's just not true. They do have these authorities. Um, I, I am confident though, that the January 6th committee is asking good questions. They have reportedly have a, a, a team known as their blue team that is just laser focused on um, the FBI and other sort of domestic intelligence ahead of January 6th and what went wrong there. And I've seen a list of their questions to the FBI, and and I actually, you know, was heartened to see that they're they're asking tough questions. Um, so you're optimistic that in hearings to follow, future hearings, public hearings, these questions, these hard questions, are going to be asked of the FBI. I think so. I mean, I think that that once the evidence is out there, uh, the the questions are going to become harder. As it's it's just going to be, it's going to become more difficult. I think. Um, for the FBI to just sort of raise the five excuses that that I raise in this piece, um, you know, there's there's already a lot of documents that have been released under FOIA. Um, uh, BuzzFeed News just released many of them, and they're they're they just don't look good um, for the agency. I mean, for example, there were for example, we know that there were. It's not like all of the FBI was turning a blind eye to this. There were several offices that were sort of raising the alarm internally. Uh, the Norfolk office, you know, down in Virginia Beach, they had submitted a, a, a bulletin um, sort of saying this, we're seeing some pretty concerning stuff. There was um, uh, a, 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 there was another group inside the FBI that was concerned. And this all harkens back to the days, you know, ahead of 9-11, the Phoenix memo, which mm-hmm. I'm sure your, your listeners, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if they're not familiar. That, that, that uh, uh, people were taking flying lessons and not particularly interested in landing planes. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that, that, and someone out there identified within the FBI that we should probably keep an eye on this. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that we will get some whistleblowers from within the FBI and other federal law enforcement coming forward and maybe contacting the committees and, and saying, you know, I did raise the alarm about this and here's what I heard. Do you have an overall explanation, Jason, of why the FBI did ignore these um, red flags? Uh, just laxity, uh, just not caring, political. What do you think? I think it's it's a little bit of all of those. I think the I would argue that the political aspect is is uh, probably a, a bigger aspect into this than a lot of people would want to admit. In that the FBI takes certain threats much more seriously than others. Uh, They take the threat of what they called in a document, black identity extremists, extremely seriously. And all you needed to do was be in any, you know, major city where there was a Black Lives Matter protest to know that. I mean, in DC here, uh, when there were these protests, I mean, you had FBI and 
I was tracking these planes. You had FBI spy planes above these protests, some extremely advanced technology uh, uh, that the DOJ owns. There wasn't a plane in the sky during January 6th. I mean, there was a medevac helicopter and that was it. I was watching. I was keeping a close eye on it. Uh, mm. And um, you You're know, You're saying that the FBI had aerial oversight, was flying spy planes over Black Lives Matters demonstrations but had nothing in the air around January 6th. Yeah, I mean, and, and not to mention, if, if you just, you just, you know, and I'm not saying that those protests didn't turn violent as well. There was definitely violence done over the summer in these protests, but the, the federal law enforcement response was massive. I mean, downtown uh, Washington, D.C. looked like a war zone. You had, you know, uh, huge military vehicles blocking the intersections. You had DEA agents, you had uh, officers from the DOJ themselves, you know, they're on the street, heavy weaponry. Um, and, you know, I don't need to tell you, if you, you just watch any video of the response on January 6th, and you had sort of the most minimal uh, crowd control available uh, uh, out there in front of the Capitol. Now, some of that, of course, lies, you know, some of that fault lies with the Capitol Police. But I think that we need to hold the FBI accountable uh, it's the FBI's job to uh, infiltrate groups that are going to cause harm and to disrupt and stop terror attacks. And, um, and it's their job to inform local law enforcement and assist local law enforcement, which I don't think that we've seen evidence that they did. Well, here's hoping that these uh, questions are uh, raised and answered uh, to the public's satisfaction in future hearings. Jason Palladino, thanks so much for joining us on Spy Talk. Thanks so much for having me. That was Jason Palladino talking about his piece, Why Didn't the FBI See the Capitol Siege Coming on the Grid News Site? Jason talked about the Capitol rioters accessing online information about the Capitol Hill tunnel system. That is going to sound very old school after you hear my upcoming interview on the metaverse. Remember, you can find Spy Talk content on Substack. Subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Gene Meserve and at Spy Talker. And hey, subscribe to the podcast too. We'll be back in a second. The metaverse. It is one of those buzzwords which seems to be turning up everywhere especially since Mark Zuckerberg announced that he was changing the name of his company, Facebook. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand to encompass everything that we do. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. So what the heck is the metaverse anyway? And why are some terrorism researchers so worried about it? Joel Elson, Austin Doctor, and Sam Hunter of the National Counterterrorism Innovation Technology and Education Center in Omaha, Nebraska, wrote an article for The Conversation on the potential uses of the metaverse by evildoers. I called them up and started by asking Joel Elson to give me an easy but accurate definition of the term metaverse. The metaverse is a concept uh, that is being thrown around uh, by various people in multiple ways. So we first need to acknowledge that. But essentially tying all of those different ways of conceptualizing the metaverse together is this basic idea of uh, digital and physical realities kind of being blended through the use of technology. On one end of the spectrum, you've got um, what comes to mind most often with people, it's donning virtual reality headsets and people entering into this completely digital world. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have um, digital objects being projected onto the physical world. And we can think about Pokemon Go, for example, or, um, possibly shopping on Amazon and observing a virtual reality object, like a, a new lamp on your desk or a new couch in your living room. And then something that we often talk about is this area in between. And that's really, really uh, important, especially as it comes to uh, potential malevolent uses of the metaverse. And it's this, this concept of physical robots and other objects that are being controlled by either 
um, intelligent systems on the back end, so artificial intelligence, and so a robot that can talk and act on its own, or people who are in a virtual reality environment who are then interacting with the world, pouring you a cup of coffee through a robot from 10,000 miles away. And so the metaverse is this, is this continuum. And uh, I think that's a basic description. Uh, the three of you have written, we see new ways for extremists to exert influence through fear, threat, and coercion in the metaverse. What are you talking about? Give me the big picture. Yeah, so uh, Sam here. Um, as, a, as a psychologist, uh, my lens is always sort of thinking about uh, social and psychological processes that are occurring. Um, as the, the metaverse uh, opens up new possibilities, uh, I think there's a number of new avenues, both for uh, ways that extremist organizations can gather members to their groups, and then also new ways for these extremist organizations to um, determine and come up with new ways of uh, engaging in terrorist activities. And so we, we sort of broke our article up um, thinking about these different uh, processes. I mentioned one, uh, the recruitment side. So there's uh, all sorts of new opportunities and ways and methods that extremist organizations could gather new members. Um, we were just sort of Expand talking- Expand on that. I mean, they're already doing it on social media. How would it be different in the metaverse? Yeah, yeah not just social media, but uh, even through all sorts of different uh, online games. ISIS, for example, has uh, its own you know, video game that it uses for, for recruitment. In a lot of ways, this is an extension and evolution of trajectories that are happening already, but they're fairly um, impactful evolutions. And so you could imagine um, from a recruitment perspective, you know, not only do you have uh, a member in an extremist organization reaching out to try to do recruiting, but that individual could be customized and tailored uh, to be suited to the type of individual that would be most effective at recruiting. We all know about uh, tailored advertising Well, the same technology, um, advanced AI could be used to create and um, facilitate uh, customized recruiting, uh, not only from a preference perspective, but as we think about, as Joel was mentioning, this blending of physical and digital reality um, it becomes harder and harder to um, make a determination whether that person is actually in front of you physically or whether that person is somewhere else digitally because these worlds are starting to become more and more integrated. And as a result, that recruitment can become even more effective and there can be um, a wider range and uh, wider reach for these extremist organizations to reach out. So psychologically, does an individual react differently to you know, this avatar in the metaverse? than it would to somebody reaching out under current technologies. Um, there's a concept of the uncanny valley. Have you heard about this concept? No, I haven't. So um, yeah, if you're presented uh, with a picture, for example, of um, an individual and you look at their face and that face is a little digitized, parts of our brain sort of register that as being similar to a human face, but a little bit off. Uh, when we see an actual human face, uh, different parts of our brain laid up and we, we register with that uh, individual as being a, a genuine human and we, we connect with them. And so for a lot of online and digital media, um, there's that uncanny valley that it looks a little like a human, but it's still a little bit different. What's starting to happen with these advanced technologies is that um, blend of what's real and what's different is becoming more seamless. And so when we think about interacting with somebody in the metaverse, um, it's going to become very difficult to determine one, whether that is an actual human in front of me, or two, because of uh, advanced AI, whether or not that individual that's recruiting me is a real person, or whether it's a set of you know, software code that's been written by a potential extremist organization, that's again, customized to, uh, to you know, try to get me to join the organization or participate in activities that I might not otherwise. So Austin, do extremist groups have the technical capability to leverage this? I think that's a really great question. And of course, the answer is that it will vary by the, the extremist actors that we're talking about. But I think what we've seen demonstrated by the extremist landscape, especially here in the United States, uh, is that these actors have been able to manipulate existing social media channels uh, and other internet-based platforms uh, for purposes of engagement, radicalization, recruitment, and, and even planning. And so um, I, I think the short answer is that that's something that we should anticipate and be wary of. So let's get to the coordination planning attack side of this, which fascinates me. 
Um, we saw in the Capitol attack that the extremists accessed maps of the tunnel system underneath the Capitol. That's going to seem really retro in the metaverse, isn't it? <laughs> Explain to me what it would look like in the future, potentially. Yeah, so I might take a stab at that. Um, this is Joel, and maps are great. But we know um, from experiments with cognition and memory and recall that um, sometimes lived experiences allow people to recall locations more easily, right? And we can all think about this in our own in our own lives of having walked through a home, and we can we can almost um, instinctually know where an object is in our home if someone were to ask us to recall that. So what the metaverse allows is for people to practice or enter into those those maps, if you will and to actually experience them as if they were really there. Uh, so that has a number of implications, right? People are more familiar. They can practice over and over uh, being in a location and develop um, you know, more confidence in their ability to take, to take action in those spaces. Um, and so that, that would be just one example of how maps are going to be enhanced by the metaverse. I think that first responders, for example, are already using 3D simulations in order to train uh, for certain kinds of uh, attacks or eventualities. Is it going to be different from what's happening today in that sphere? Yeah, so as technology progresses, uh, there are numerous um, ways that we can leverage other cognition principles. So this concept of uh, embodied, uh, embodied cognition or kinesthetic learning, we can actually now put firefighters, for example, in front of a very complex um, fire engine uh, system and have people utilizing um, resistance gloves and resistance um, bands. They can actually have physical memory of turning levers and to get that feedback and so we're activating not only their visual sense of where information is or how to conduct something, we're now getting tangible uh, signals being sent to the brain. All of this uh, input just allows learning to occur, um, at least from early research, in ways that are uh, at deeper levels and also at levels that are more quick. Uh, you can learn faster. So Austin, what this would do is facilitate planning, correct? I think so, yeah. I remember that the Washington snipers trained using video games. They did shooting games to both get familiar with some of the techniques, but I believe also to get over the psychological hurdle of putting a bullet in a human being. Is that the way the metaverse could potentially be used to train people? Sam here, so I'll offer a couple, a couple thoughts. I'll take one step back and say there's an interesting historical example of 9/11, where the hijackers did um, training on right so the to the training on the um, uh, plane simulations, which was really you know prep for what they engaged in. And so I, I think the specific question about um, shooting is an interesting one, and certainly there's an argument that um, folks can you know, understand a target landscape. Um, and there is an argument that folks could um, overcome some of the you know, potential psychological barriers of, of causing harm to others. Um, I would step back and say part of the threats in the metaverse are not only about uh, thinking with regard to conventional threats. So obviously, we're always afraid of uh, things going boom and bombs going off and um, guns going off as well. But one of the things that the metaverse will afford is um, additional threats and, and targets. Uh, so not just you know, getting ready for threats as they exist and being you know, more efficient and effective at those, but there's also the opportunity um, for an entirely new target space threat landscape um, as well. So explain that. You know, the metaverse itself will afford things that people will care about. Uh, people will make buildings, they'll make churches, they'll make synagogues, they'll make things that feel sacred to them. They will spend time building, designing, implementing. People will be hired for those. Their careers will be tied into those. Their identities will be tied into those. And so it may seem like, oh, this is just a, just a digital space, but when you're meeting your family there, when you interact with your friends, when you worship together, these places become sacred. They become things that we love and we care about so now we have a digital ecosystem that can be attacked within that space using all sorts of new approaches and weapons or whatever we want to call them 
to attack those things that we hold sacred. So I don't want to disregard uh, conventional threats. That That is in the short term. I think the metaverse affords people being much better at doing all sorts of things that we care about from a danger perspective. But there's also the entirely new um, landscape where people will be designing, making a building within uh, the metaverse itself, and those become targets as well. So Austin, I'd like to pursue this just a little bit. Can you give me a concrete example of something in the metaverse that could be attacked that would matter? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really important question. And really to build on what Sam and Joel have said here is that, you know, in this article that we wrote for the conversation, we really focused on these near-term effects, right? The, the threat landscape as it relates to the next couple of years surrounding the metaverse and violent extremism and terrorist activity. But on a broader scale, we're also thinking about this timeline of the threat landscape as it relates to the metaverse, not just in the near term, but also the intermediate and, and, and long term. And, and that's where we see the types or, or anticipate the possibility of the types of attacks that, that you're mentioning, um, uh, particularly as the physical and the, the digital realities become more blended. Uh, the metaverse possesses this potential to prompt a seismic shift uh, in society uh, with important implications for how things like identities are formed uh, or adopted, communities formed, and, and even value determined. Um, and these types of factors that are often at the center of how extremist and, and terrorist violence is both motivated and, and even justified. Um, and so we're, we're, we're concerned that the metaverse as a form of technological innovation, and, and we should clarify an exciting one, may also set in motion this sort of uh, a number of consequential second and third order effects on, on society, on politics, and even national and global economics. And so one of those ways is in the form of critical infrastructure, uh, where the metaverse itself may embody or comprise a new type of critical infrastructure, where um, governments or banking institutions, corporations uh, hold daily operations in, in, in connection with their constituents, clients, customers within the metaverse. And this is, this is the definition, right, of, of what uh, constitutes critical infrastructure, something that's necessary uh, to daily political, social, and economic activity. And so these are the types of things we would expect to also be targeted as they gain more meaning in this blended reality. I'm thinking back to the recent attack on the synagogue, uh, which was streamed on Facebook. So we all got to watch it in real time or listen to it in real time. That's going to look like nothing next to what could happen in the metaverse, correct? Yeah, I mean, so that that is one of the types of attacks that people can then experience it in this in this way. People in the metaverse could experience that attack firsthand in a more immersive way, for example. And I think to Austin's point about critical infrastructure being in the metaverse, you know, you along this continuum, if you will, you have you know uh, purely digital critical infrastructure. You could think of um, things like a, a a polling place online that is. Um, being you know, interrupted by a virtual protest, or you can think of a physical building or a sacred place of worship in the real physical space uh, being defaced by some kind of symbolic imagery that is offensive or counter to the message that, that those, those communities hold dear. Keep in mind, Barbados recently announced that they're launching uh, an embassy and establishing an embassy within the metaverse just last year. And so it's not just about, I mean, we have all of these retailers investing in this space. They're uh, real estate itself where people are purchasing digital private islands for up to $300,000, right? Which is the roughly the equivalent of the median American you know, house uh, uh, or cost of a, of a home uh, in America. We're also seeing these very visible political uh, institutions uh, manifesting themselves already uh, in, in the metaverse. And I think that's just a glimpse of, of sort of the, uh, the, the dimensions um, the, and, and import that this space is going to afford. When you say political actors are already active in the space, what are you talking about? Well, as a, as a nation state, um, Barbados, right, is, is declaring a portion of the metaverse to be part of their sovereign territory. That's consequential. A lot of people have criticized the social media platforms for not building in better security and ethics. Is there a way to build the metaverse with those things as fundamental components? 
It's a complicated and important question, um, but I think it's important to have this conversation now, right? Where it's it's inevitable that the first movers in this space are are the larger corporations that are responsible for developing the metaverse, right? And so having those conversations with those corporations now, uh, rather than at a time when it's it's too late or or reactive uh, to instances of violence within the metaverse, it, it's important to have those now. Um, but as, as we move forward, also recognizing the role of civil society and government and playing a role in, in governing this space, uh, understanding and even creating uh, a legal structure for understanding who's responsible for monitoring uh, or establishing laws, monitoring those laws and enforcing them within a heavily decentralized space that, that transcends uh, global political borders. So beyond the three of you, are those conversations taking place? They are. If it's not built with these safeguards, is it going to be possible really to police it once it's built? You know, to that to that end, we have to kind of look at our current society, right? And there are communities that we are able to police and there are communities that we choose to reside in and we choose to live in various countries. Um, you know, it goes on and on. And I think the metaverse is, is likely to follow in similar in a similar model. I think there will be definitely intentional communities that we choose to police and we choose um, to monitor and, and to live in and to participate in. And then we also have to recognize, and this is part of the forward-looking research that has to be done, you have to recognize that because of decentralized technologies, because the metaverse can um, be instantiated in so many ways, right, almost infinite ways, that there is going to be a wild west of sorts that is going to require some really, really deep thought about how we uh, as society want to move forward. If you were gonna leave our audience with an important question to ponder, what would it be? One of the most important questions to me is how do we engage in the metaverse in a constructive way? Recognizing the way that other inter internet-based platforms are being used today to increase polarization, to silo our information and personal networks. Uh, can we use the metaverse uh, to reverse those trends rather than exacerbate them? Sam, Joel, any thoughts? Uh, mine is less of a question, but it's a lesson that I had to learn the hard way um, that I think has prompted a lot of reflection. And uh, the quick story is I have a 10-year-old daughter. Uh, she came down the stairs and she was about uh, eight years old. She was in tears. And I said, I said, what's wrong? And she said, well, I was playing a game and this would have sort of um, represent the metaverse in some ways. It's called Roblox and it's this whole world. And she was in there and she said, I wanted to trade uh, one of my pets with someone, but they took it and they didn't give it back. And now it's gone. And she was weeping and I was not a great dad. And I sort of snapped at her and said, Honey, that's not real. That's not a real friend. That's not a real thing. It doesn't matter. And what I missed as a father and what I think uh, I fear that we miss um, as researchers and in some ways as a broader society is that her feelings were very real. Her attachment to these digital things were very real. And we should not dismiss um, how much people will care about these things moving forward. I made that mistake. Her generation and the future generations um, this is their reality. This blending of physical and digital is the world they will grow up in. It will be seamless to them. It will matter to them. And when we love those things, those things can be taken away. They can be damaged. They can be harmed. And so I, I learned in that moment to not dismiss this as silly as my, my old brain wanted to, to think of. I learned not to dismiss um, how important those things were for her and I think the future generation. Joel? Yeah, you know, my, my final parting words are to remember that in the past, the concept of computers in your pocket, or let alone, you know, computers at your home, was laughed at and dismissed. The metaverse, from the perspective of an information uh, technology researcher, is going to lead to opportunities for humanity to be more expressive, more inclusive, and to make humanity all the more connected and whole. And I, I don't want the fear of the unknown to um, cause people not to continue to strive to push forward and to engage in communities and to continue um, to be excited for tomorrow. Uh, Sam here, there's, I guess, I guess one uh, quick point is, as we think about the future, there's a number of 
clear trends and trajectories that we can extrapolate from. I think a lot of this seems like, oh, that, that's crazy. I can't believe these things are gonna happen. There's just no way these things are gonna happen. But uh, when we sort of track back and realize that extremist organizations already use a number of um, you know, social entertainment platforms to recruit members, and this is the next iteration. When we realize that the 9-11 hijackers use flight simulators and folks you know, gathered maps for January 6th, it's the next iteration of that. And when we think about um, folks are already attacking things from a cyber and critical infrastructure perspective, and as the metaverse is formed, this is the next iteration. And so I think when we when we look at those clear data points, it's not as difficult to understand that as we move forward, it's a pretty clear trajectory of how the metaverse is both important and how ultimately it's going to be used or potentially be used by extremist organizations. I think just as one final final sort of parting word is is just the the importance of interdisciplinary work uh, in tackling this problem set. The Metaverse is a form of technological innovation, but its implications span across uh, all types of uh, a number of types of, of human experiences. And that's why drawing not just on uh, the fields of tech, technology and innovation, but also psychology and the social sciences is going to be important to coming to an actionable set of next steps um, so that we can use the metaverse and, and engage with the metaverse in a constructive way, right, rather than allowing it to fall uh, and, and become susceptible to the types of threats that, that we've identified relating to, to violent extremism. Thanks to Austin Doctor, Sam Hunter, and Joel Elson of the University of Nebraska Omaha, all terrorism researchers at the National Counterterrorism Innovation Technology and Education Center, known as Insight. I was just gobsmacked by that interview, Gene. I, I, I recalled, you know, the first time I saw Matrix and came away kind of thinking, gee, isn't the technology we're developing, and this is what, 25 years ago, isn't this going to lead us into a, an alternate universe? Uh, and then came that movie Avatar. And of course, there were the virtual reality headsets that also came on scene about 20 years ago. And I began suspecting that we were going to live partly in a virtual world and it scared me and I just moved along and I didn't really want to think about it anymore. But what you're saying or what they're telling you is it's here and it's got some real bad trapdoors in it. Potentially. We don't know exactly how it's going to develop. As they said to me at the beginning of the internet, we didn't really know what it was going to look like now. It's the same with the metaverse. It depends, you know, how the developers choose to do it and how people choose to use it. Well, that's another week of Spy Talk. Thanks for being with us. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Stay healthy. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.